So uh, before we get started, uh, I'll just introduce you two to each other, um, and then we can start uh, and everything. Uh, have you guys met before? No. It's a pleasure. Okay. All right. Uh, Ish, this is Alan. Alan, this is Ish. Um, Alan, I believe uh, you went to church with uh, Jerry a long time ago, didn't you? Yeah, a long time ago. Okay. Back in Norman. Okay. And uh, Ish, he's friends with Jerry as well. And uh, um, he is living currently in uh, Midlothian. So, but uh, whenever you guys are ready. Oh, real quick before we uh, do anything else, record. Um, at the very beginning, on the opening affirmative and the opening uh, negative statement, um, I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll state the resolution thesis that we've sent to you. Um, we, uh, I sent this over to Moody, or I talked to him earlier. Um, would you be okay, Alan, to shorting, shortening it rather like, I know you were going to get into uh, all of your position in the beginning and, and Moody, R was as well, but since uh, we'll have all the time in the other areas, would you mind shorting it just like uh, in the beginning, just making a statement like your position on everything and then go into um, like in the rebuttal part, we'll get into the more details of everything. Does that sound all right? That's not how I thought it out. That, I don't, that's fine. Sounds good. Or, or if you want, uh, I'll tell you what, would, would five minutes be okay in the beginning? Would that give you all plenty of time? Um, I'll, take, I'll take five if that's okay with uh, Brother Ish. Five, five minutes would be good. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So tell me when you guys want to start, and I'll uh, just kind of introduce both of you, and we'll start, the, I guess, the recording there. I'm ready. All right. Uh, my name's Jared James. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Church, and I uh, have with me this evening uh, Dr. Ishwan Mudliar out of Midlothian, Texas. He is also the pastor of Christ Reformed Church. And uh, also here we have uh, Alan out of uh, Tulsa. He uh, does a lot of abortion, uh, anti-abortion work, uh, uh, working on abolishing abortion. And uh, tonight we're going to be discussing uh, the resolution thesis is, does the New Testament teach that the local churches should have the offices of elder and deacon? And uh, so to begin, uh, we start with the affirmative Dr. Ishwar Mudiar is taking the position uh, that yes, we are to have elders and deacons, and uh, Alan is taking the position of, um, I'm assuming, uh, no elders or deacons, uh, so I will let them clarify their statements and everything. Uh, the first uh, affirmative will go for five minutes, so uh, Ish, if you want to go ahead, I'll get my clock started. And uh, you can present uh, your uh, biblical case for elders and uh, and deacons in the church. So uh, time begins now. Okay, let me present in this opener six points, six reasons why we ought to consider the offices of elder and deacon in the local church. The first one comes from 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, 1 says that the office of an overseer 
the office of an overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. Now, the translation of the New American Standard Bible says the office of overseer. The reason for that is the Greek word comes from epi, uh, episkopes, episkopes, and that does not mean the person holding the office, but it has to do with the office itself. If it were the person, which is mentioned in verse 2, it would be episkopos. Episcopes and episkopos. Episcopes is used in verse 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1, in contrast to verse 2. So that establishes that it is an office. Point number 2. Point number 2 comes from 1 Timothy 4, 14. 1 Timothy 4, 14, which mentions the presbytery. At least the NASB translation is the presbytery. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was first bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery is a body of elders. That is the Greek meaning of it. And this also is according to an office or a council, a group, an established group. Presbyterion is the Greek word for body of elders or presbytery. Presbyterion. It's not the word presbyteros, which would be elder or old man. The person would be presbyteros. However, in 1 Timothy 4.14, we have presbyterion, which is an office. Then, the third reason. The third reason comes from Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11, where the apostle describes various offices. He says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. It's very clear that apostles and prophets are offices. They're not just in reference to maturity or something of that nature. They have to do with the office of apostle, office of prophet. The same with evangelist such as Philip was in Acts chapter 21. Philip was an evangelist. According to the biblical definition of the gift and the office where that gift is exercised. So in verse 11, Ephesians 4:11, it also says pastors and teachers. Pastor or shepherd. Shepherd or pastor, either translation is the same meaning. Poimen is the Greek word for shepherd or pastor. Usually translations say pastor in Ephesians 4.11, but shepherd otherwise in other places. That's the third reason. The fourth reason has to do with submission or subjection, however it is rendered. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, Ephesians 5.21, this is an often misinterpreted and distorted verse. Ephesians 5.21 says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. Hupotasso is the Greek word in Ephesians 5.21 and 24. It's implied in verse 22, but it is actually there in verses 21 and 24. 
the reason that this word is important, it has to do with submission or being under another and in a good sense, such as Christ our Lord was in Luke 2.51, where it says that he continued in subjection to his parents. In the same way, wives are to be to their husbands. In chapter 6, children to parents and slaves to masters in Ephesians 5 and 6. The fifth reason is the Greek word kathisteme, which is in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that the apostle left him in Crete in order that he might appoint elders, appoint elders in every city of Crete. That word to appoint is also to put in charge. So Titus was commissioned with that duty, kathisteme. Titus 1.5. And then the sixth point has to also do with Titus. Titus 1.15. Titus 1.15, where the apostle, after giving instructions, <clears throat> says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All authority or commandment, let no one disregard you. Epitage is the Greek word. Epitage, authority. Because people are generally chaotic and extremely decentralized and rebel against authority. And he says here they should not do that to Titus. I gotta stop right there. Um, I add an extra minute. Uh, I'm glad we went over three minutes. Uh, we actually have six minutes. So get an extra minute there, Alan. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so that's six minutes. I'll let you go uh, six minutes, Alan. Um, state your reasoning for your position, and uh, let me reset this. And um, and also, I apologize. Uh, I didn't mention your last name, Alan Miracle. Did I pronounce it right? Yeah, you got it right. All right, all right. So I didn't butcher it. So that's good. All right. That's good. Let's. Uh, whenever you're ready, I'll start the timer. Okay. Go. Um, like to thank you very much, Brother Ish, for participating in this debate. Um, and uh, I believe this to be an in-house debate between brothers who believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but it's worthwhile because any question of biblical interpretation is worthwhile. So, just want to be, uh, just want to say glory to the Lord Jesus Christ again. Thank you, brother. Um, I believe that the word office is best defined uh, as something like a position whose character is largely invariant with respect to the individual, uh, with respect to the individual who fills that position. An office you might think of uh, functions the same way, more or less, regardless of who is filling that office and which is generally independent of the people who fill the offices, which is why they have rules and procedures of succession, etc. But I don't think that's consistent with the way um, the Bible uh, thinks about the way that the church ought to be. Um, a passage from Matthew chapter 20 I'd like to bring up. In Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those in high position exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Matthew 23, uh, verse 8, uh, Jesus said, But as for you, do not be called rabbi, for only one is your teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for only one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest of you shall be your servant, 
and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Uh, so, as we can see, Jesus command, uh, commands the drive to lowliness and service, but also explicitly speaks against someone calling uh, against calling someone father in the context of how Gentiles are lorded over by quote unquote benefactors who exercise authority over them. So, whatever it looks like among followers of Jesus to relate to each other, it's supposed to be the opposite of how it goes between Gentile quote unquote benefactors and their vassals. Uh, taking and giving titles along these lines militates against the peer-to-peer -peer and brother-to-sister relationships were taught all through the New Testament. Some specifics, uh, oh, I would mention 1 Peter 2, chapter 9, we are all a royal priesthood. Now, I believe that a lot of the discussion around this uh, topic has been tainted by translator bias. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we are told exactly what Paul means when he uses the word presbyteros. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, Paul says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, a presbyteros but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the, younger, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, if the word meant clergy officeholder, how would it make sense for Paul to use it here in contrast to younger men, older women, and younger women? So why do English Bibles not say, don't rebuke an elder here in 1 Timothy 5? It's a more general word, and it shows us how Paul is establishing his meaning throughout the Pauline corpus. He thinks that the word presbyteros means older, mature man. He does not think of it as a clergy office holder, uh, and I think that any time that the word is used in any other part of the Pauline corpus, or the Petrian corpus, I would argue as well, the context would need to demand that we translate the word differently than what the word means in a more general sense, as in 1 Timothy 5.1, it means older, mature man. Now, one might argue that the semantic range includes both concepts, but you'd have to kind of, you know, you'd have to show where the context demands it. Um, I would, uh, I guess we could talk about First Timothy three a little bit later um, about the about the pastor thing, um, brother Ish. I'm thank you. I'm thankful that you pointed out the word pastor poimen. Um, that same word uh, is used in Luke chapter two of the guys who went to see baby Jesus in the manger, and uh, in an Ephesians four. Um, you know, a lot of the time, and, and uh, one of brother Ish's uh, points, he mentioned that it's a it's an office in Ephesians four. Interestingly. The word poimain in Ephesians 4 is specifically and explicitly identified as a gift, but not an office. The, the, the word office does not appear in Ephesians 4. Um, First Peter uses the word, uh, the, the verb form, which I'm not, I'm not an expert in Greek or anything, but he uses the verb form of the same word poimain, poimain neo or something like that, uh, and he refers to it as an action. Uh, it seems to me that the word, you know, to shepherd uh, would refer to a gift that God gives to the body, or it refers to an action that one can do with or without a title. You don't need a title to shepherd somebody, you just shepherd them. Um, we did not talk much about um, the office of deacon. We could get into it uh, a little bit later, I suppose. Um, I did think it's interesting. Well, the last thing I'll say about this, uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, 21, um, uh, Brother Ish says that the verse is distorted, the, 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 uh, the idea that we would submit to one another. The verse says, you know, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the idea that, like, a, an office holder of elder or pastor or something like that might be somebody to whom you're supposed to submit. Um, I guess we should, we should start with a baseline of asking, like, in what way and under what circumstances should we submit to that individual? Because if they're, you know, if we're talking about a given controversy or a given question, then if the you know, clergy office holder says a thing, but then he's actually mistaken, he's actually you know, expressing what is contra-biblical, 
then it would be everybody else's responsibility to refuse to submit to what he said because he was in the wrong. Um, so I don't really see how it's helpful to discuss how we might submit, you know, to to an office holder. Like um, it, it doesn't. It's not clear under what circumstances we would do so, or how it would be different from any other relationship in between peers. Um, I think we could stop there, maybe. Sorry, I was on mute. All right, um, we next go to the uh, affirmative rebuttal. Uh, got 10 minutes on this. Uh, we'll stock, uh, start with you, Dr. Moviar. I'll uh, go ahead and get my, my clock going. So you can go ahead. Yes. Yes. Alan was taking Matthew 23, 8, when Christ said, don't be called teacher, father, or leader. It seems to me that he was meaning it in the way of that title or that name or that word shouldn't be used of anyone. If that is the case, then Hebrews 13, 17 contradicts Matthew 23, 8. Because the apostle in Hebrews 13, 17 does call the people, the men there, leaders. Some of the men, he calls them leaders. And he calls on the church to to be in um, proper relationship with those leaders when he says that they should obey your leaders. Then it would mean that there's a contradiction between Hebrews 13, 17 and Matthew 23, 8. However, if Christ simply meant that we should not be seeking attention and boast, boastfully and in a domineering way usurping authority and mistreating the people, then of course, that's what he meant in Matthew 23. And that's why Matthew 23, 8 does not contradict Hebrews 13, 17. The same with the word father. The same with the word father and even with the word teacher or rabbi. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 15, the Apostle Paul says this, I became your father through the gospel. I became your father through the gospel. Did Paul contradict Christ in Matthew 23, 8? No. He's talking about the endearing discipleship relationship he has with Timothy. And that's all he means by it. He doesn't mean it in a forceful, domineering way at all. He's not usurping power, authority. He's not boasting. He's explaining the situation he has, the relationship he has with Timothy. And that's all. And that's good for him to do that. He's not sinning and he's not contradicting Christ. We could also say the same with the word teacher. Because the apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that he is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He calls himself a teacher. The Apostle Paul does. Not contradicting Matthew 28, 23, 8, but in the spirit of what Jesus actually meant. Jesus meant we shouldn't be flaunting and boasting, publicly displaying our knowledge and our power and manipulating and 
deceiving the people, doing wrong to the people. That's all Jesus meant there, or that's mainly what Jesus meant there in Matthew 23. Therefore, it's not the words themselves or the office that is the problem. It's the abuse of the words and the abuse of the office. In reference to 1 Peter 2.9, this is a key problem. The, the view that Alan is espousing misunderstands the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers, according to Holy Scripture in 1 Peter 2.9 and elsewhere, and even in the history of the last 500 years since the Reformation, it never meant that we were all on the same level and, there, and that there were no offices. It didn't mean that. The Reformers didn't mean that. Luther didn't mean that. Yes, some of the Anabaptists began to teach that, but that's not what they meant when they were promoting that doctrine and explaining, expounding that doctrine. That's not what they meant by it. As to 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, the word elder, uh, presbuteros, is used there. That's true. But it's, according to context, some context, we're talking about old men and old women such as Titus chapter 2, which is a, a counterpart to 1 Timothy 5. Some contexts are addressing old men and old women, and that's why the translations say older men, older women, younger men, younger women. But in the context of 1 Timothy 3, we're talking about offices. And that's why even the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3, 1, did use the word for office, the office of overseer. Then, in reference to Ephesians 4.11, when you say that it's a gift or an action, not an office, the place where the gift is exercised, according to the verse, is the office. That's the point that you're not willing to see. Just like the apostleship was a gift, but it was also an office. Not everyone was an apostle. Not everyone was a prophet. And it's not merely based on a gift of the Holy Spirit, but also where that gift is exercised, where the action of the gift is exercised, and it is exercised in an office. Office of apostle, office of prophet, office of evangelist, office of pastor-teacher. Then the confusion or distortion of Ephesians 5.21 has to do partially with how you also mentioned Matthew 20, 25. What does submission mean in the Bible or lording it over mean? Lording it over is obviously domineering. It's mistreating the people under them. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew 20. But that's not what is meant in Ephesians 5, 21. He's talking about the proper way to be subject to one another or the proper way to submit to one another or the proper way to obey one another. He is not teaching that the wife should submit to the husband and then the husband submit to the wife. He's not teaching that the child should submit to the parent and then the parent submit to the child. He's not teaching that the slave should submit to the master and then the master submit to the slave. They each have their positions or they each have their office. The husband has the office of husband and he is head over the wife. The 
parents have the office, the position of parents over the children and the children are supposed to submit to them. Of course, if a master or a parent or a husband is abusing his office, abusing his position, which is also a gift, by the way, it's a gift to be a parent because children are a blessing, a gift from God. So we are um, exercising a privilege in raising children. So gifts are spread abroad. It doesn't have to be just in the way that we're speaking of it. It can also be a general um, assertion that a gift is many different things. So the real question is, you are assuming submission and holding an office that intrinsically there is no valid way, no proper way, biblically speaking, to have an office and then to have it function the way the Bible intends it to function. And the Bible is not ambiguous. It's clear enough. The Bible is clear enough on how this should be practiced in the local church. It's not unclear. All right. All right. You have a couple more minutes if you want, or we can move okay. on. Okay, a couple more minutes. Then let me also lay alone in Ephesians 5.21, one another. Um, feminists or egalitarian um, feminists um, or evangelical feminists, egalitarians, they have taken this word alone, one another, and distorted it from Ephesians 5.21 and elsewhere. It does not mean that one, one party equally submits to another party and then the reciprocal also happens. It does not mean that at all. In some contexts it means that, but it does not mean it in this context because right after saying it in 521, he mentions wives and husbands in the rest of chapter five. Then he mentions children and parents in chapter six, one to four, slaves and masters in chapter six, five to nine. And there is no way he meant that masters are to submit or to obey their slaves, or parents are to submit to or obey, be subject to their children. He didn't mean it that way in the context. Furthermore, we have a couple of other New Testament usage, uses of this word, alelon, one another. Galatians 6, Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It's uh, almost time. Go ahead and read that if you want. I'll give Even you if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Who will be bearing the other's burdens? It's going to be the spiritual bearing the burdens of the weak, which he goes on to explain in the, in the rest of the paragraph, one to five, that the strong spiritually help the weak spiritually who are falling into sin. So it's, for, uh, it's one direction. It's from the strong to the weak. All right. Yeah, reference, quick reference would be Revelation 6, 4, where it says, men should slay one another. And that obviously means 
that one man or a group of men are going to slay another group of men. It doesn't mean that the ones slain are going to rise from the dead immediately and then go kill their own killers. And that keeps happening. It doesn't mean that. It's one direction, monodirectional. Those men, one slay another man, or one group slays another group. All right. All right, Alan. Um, am I on mute? Can you hear me? I keep forgetting to push it. So, um, all right. So uh, let me reset here. He went eleven twenty-five. So give you the same time. You need it. Uh, all right. Go ahead. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Again, brother, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you for uh, your solid teaching. Um, so I've got, yeah, I'll try to take several uh, points here in disagreement. Um, first of all, I want to say uh, I'm very glad that the brother expresses opposition to a domineering attitude. Uh, it is sincerely good to hear that. Uh, I expected nothing less from a good brother like uh, Brother Ish. Um, and I also, I also agree with his point about flaunting power and whatnot in public uh, when it comes to Matthew 23. Here's where I disagree with the brother on Matthew 23. Uh, so again, for everybody listening, we're talking about uh, Matthew 23 where Jesus says, you know, do not be called teacher, do not be called father, do not be called leader. Um, so the brother cites some counterexamples. I don't believe they apply, and here's why. Um, so for example, he countersites uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Uh, which uh, in the New American Standard says more or less, you know, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, etc. Um, the, the distinction that we need to identify here is that in, in the epistle to the Hebrews, he's talking about somebody else uh, identifying those guys, these leaders who had gone before, who had preached the gospel, who had showed a good example of life. Uh, I don't see it as a command to call those guys by a title, for one thing. It is calling attention to how those guys live. That's why it says imitate their faith in verse 7, identifying the same men. Calling attention to how those guys lived, what they did among the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews. He's, he's talking about specific people. Obviously, it's applicable more widely you know, to, to us in this day as well, where we can be thankful for godly men who have gone before, who have showed us the way, who have uh, helped us to grow in sanctification and taught us stuff. Um, but in the epistle to the Hebrews, he was talking about some specific men um, how those guys live. That's how he's choosing to identify them yet a little bit, uh, you know, without like naming names exactly. Uh, I would see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4.15 and 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I became your father. Yeah, but he's not asking them to call him father all the time. In, in, the, in the epistles to the Corinthians, Paul is obviously engaged in um, at least some attempt to redeem like a, an endearing relationship, as you rightly said, brother. Uh, between those assemblies and him because they were you know they were turning aside to follow after these false apostles who would pretend to be friendly and would pretend to be you know after their good and all that kind of stuff but instead they would actually like punch him in the face and you know and, and Paul's like look why don't you why don't you love me I preach the gospel to you free of charge why what's so attractive about these other men and then he reminds them of the relationship that exists but there's no indication that uh, there's no need to interpret that in terms of uh, his demanding to be called by a title or encouraging them to call him by a title. And the same thing for Timothy 2, not insisting that other people call him that, rather just identifying himself, identifying what he's done. Um, I'd like to move on to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the claim is that I misunderstood the priesthood of believers. Uh, the, the brother says it's, it never meant that we were all on the same level. I see that as a, as a problematic view because uh, what I see is it's setting up a caste system within the body of Christ. 
Uh, and it's easy to see how something like that can cause difficulties among the body in an assembly of believers where some are seen to be like above the other and the rest are below. Uh, some obvious possibilities result, uh, some obvious possible results are like conflicts of interests on both sides, conflicts of interests on the part of those who might, uh, you know, to, who have the, like the clergy authority, um, but they might fear losing that authority, that uh, kind of that position over other people, and so they might hesitate to call out sin. I'm not saying it's always going to happen, but it's an impediment, it's an obstacle, it's a difficulty, and I think it's a suboptimal way to set up uh, an assembly. Um, it, it can also result in an apathetic attitude on the part of the lay people, where everybody's like, uh, even doing so much as, as we see here in America, like, uh, oh yeah, my neighbor needs to hear the gospel, I'm going to take him to the pastor. No, you should learn to share the gospel, and you should share the gospel with him. And then if you want, you can also take him to the pastor, and the pastor can be like, well, what did he tell you? And then listens to the gospel presentation, he's like, absolutely, you should totally repent and believe the gospel, just like your, just like your Christian neighbor said, atheist neighbor. You know, but instead, what we find is, uh, I believe that that church structure contributes to that attitude. Obviously, it's not a direct causal relationship. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that it creates impediments, um, uh, as well as any as well as creating impediments uh, to any need to, for example, rebuke the clergy or something if they're in sin. That's easily seen. Uh, in First Timothy chapter three and in Ephesians four, I think we run into a similar problem. Um, in First Timothy three, verse one. Uh, look, I'm not a Greek expert, and maybe Brother Ish can shed some more light on this, if possible, in his remaining time, but um, there, I don't see any reason in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to, to put the office of. The word is episkabos, okay? The, that word appears in other places in the New Testament, and it's not translated with the word office then. What is it in the context of 1 Timothy 3 that demands that you add words to make it specific? That's not how translation works. Translation, you're supposed to be controlled by the, you know, it's, there's, there's a semantic range, semantic domain of a given word, and then you look at usage and you look at context, and that determines how you translate the word. I'm not an expert in Greek translation, but I am an expert in translation from language to language. That's just how it works. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't see any reason in 1 Timothy 3 to, to input office of in the context uh, any more than I would see the same thing in, um, in Titus. Um, interestingly, I, w I wonder, I mean, could, could we not argue in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you know, just because, uh, let's see, let me jump over to 1 Timothy 5 real quick, in my Bible page, do not sharply rebuke a presbyteros, that's the word in question for elder, but rather appeal to him as a father, and to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and to the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are actually widows, etc., etc. Why don't we just consider those church offices too? Um, it seems to me there's the exact same contextual need uh, or contextual justification to translate those things at, as office of, you know, do not do not sharply rebuke an office of elder or an off, a holder of the office of elder or whatever, um, you know, and uh, appeal to the guys who hold the office of younger man. Why don't we just make everybody an office holder? Um, there's much more to be said about that in the uh, the topic of deacon as well, but I'll, I'll leave that alone for now because we're mostly talking about uh, presbyteroid and whatnot. Um, uh, along those lines, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, one, uh, Brother Isha's second point, um, do not neglect the laying on of hands by the uh, presbytery, or pres uh, presbyter I forget what the word is in Greek, but the, uh, the, the council of older men. Um, you know, contextually, why couldn't we interpret that? Why couldn't we see that as a specific group of older men that Paul and Timothy knew, 
and Paul was referring, it's a, it's a personal letter to Timothy that just, you know, in the providence of God has come to the people of God over the course of time. But why would we consider that to be some kind of office or official counsel as well? I don't see the contextual reason that would necessitate that. Um, so, uh, so what it seems to me is that the what I'm trying to say about the translational bias and whatnot, it seems to me that the, the translators of modern Bibles, which are really, really good, and praise God for the New American Standard and the, e, the ESV and the, you know, the Christian Standard Bible, and I'm sure, and the NKJV, and I'm sure the Legacy Standard Bible will also be awesome. I just think that in these particular points, the translators fell prey to certain, transla uh, certain traditions that were passed down, and they just didn't examine them. It can happen to anybody. That's why we're supposed to be semper reformanda. We're always supposed to be looking to the scriptures as the source and trying to, you know, strip down assumptions and try to get back to the base. Is there any reason to think that the guy, that, that Timothy, when he read 1 Timothy, and the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Timothy was reading it, was is there any contextual reason to think that Timothy at that time, without any assumptions that have been laid on by the development of apostolic succession and all this hierarchy in the Roman church over the course of the centuries, would Timothy have thought that definitely refers to an office? Or... Would he have thought that means an older, mature man, just like in First Timothy chapter five? Uh, let's see. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Similarly, I was going to mention in Ephesians chapter four, the brother uh, mentioned that the gift is exercised in the office. It's very easy to use a word that means office if that's what you mean, but it just says gift. Um, one thing that I would like to ask the brother, uh, and uh, hopefully I'll get to it during the cross-examination, is uh, do we consider that the New Testament church actually has, let's see, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd teacher, deacon, so that's five offices. Um, do we talk about five offices? I don't usually hear it expressed that way, usually I hear just two. I wonder where the evangelist went. But I, can, I, I understand the cessationist argument that might say that the apostle and the prophet have gone away, fair enough. Okay, we can talk about that some other time. But what about evangelists? So are there three offices? Um, it seems to me that Ephesians 4, it specifically and explicitly says gift. Why would we consider it to be an office? It says gift. We can just go with it and consider that it's a gift. Um, not everyone was an apostle or prophet, true enough, just like 1 Corinthians 12 says. Not everybody is an evangelist office holder either, or an evangelist, or has the gift of evangelism, etc. 1 Corinthians 12 explains that in more detail, as does Romans 14 talking about how the Spirit distributes gifts as He wills. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Got about one, excuse me, one more minute. Thank you. The brother referred to um, Acts 21, uh, uh, Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21, when he was referring to the office. Uh, this might kind of tangentially get into the, the question of the office of evangelist. In Acts 21, it does indeed say Philip the Evangelist, yet it says that he was one of the seven um, Acts chapter six says that he was a, that that he was one of those seven guys who were set aside to uh, to wait tables. Usually, that's identified as the office of deacon. I wonder was he a dual office holder? Just an interesting thought that I had. Um, in First Timothy five two, I think I might have talked about this already, but uh, you know, I would I would wonder is old woman a church office? Is young woman a church office? And finally, with this question of authority, with nineteen seconds left, uh, Ephesians five twenty one, you know. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, let the wife submit to her husband, etc. Should the wife submit to the husband in literally every scenario? This gets to the question of authority. I'm sure the brother would say absolutely not. Um, when shall the wife refuse to submit to her husband? That's a question I need to ask. Amen. Alright. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, let's see. 
So uh, we've got a little break here if we want to take one, if anybody needs to use a restroom or get a drink of water or something like that. Yes. Okay. All right. We'll pause it real quick, and uh, I'm going to get my... <clears throat> I'm going to get my uh, cord and plug my laptop in, so be right back. All right. Ten minutes? Uh, yeah, ten. Seven. Ten eight. minutes. If we get back earlier, we can start earlier. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so now we uh, go to the uh, cross-examination. Um, on this, we have 15 minutes, and uh, Dr. Mouliar will go first. So, get to my clock. All right, Dr. Mouliar, you can go ahead and start. Alan, have you studied Greek, New Testament Greek, or Hebrew, or anything like that? Have you studied biblical languages? New Testament Greek at only the most basic level. Uh, how much and where? Oh, not, oh, nothing, nothing formal. Nothing formal. Right. Okay. Then, uh, how is it that you are able to say that modern translations are good? Generally, a lot of good ones, they are really good, you said except in this area they have failed. How is it possible for you to make that assessment if you haven't studied New Testament Greek in a significant way over many years? It's certainly possible I'm mistaken about the quality of the modern translations. Um, I don't really have a good reason. I've you know tried to listen to arguments on both sides, like King James only stuff is interesting to listen to just because it's, you run into it sometimes as an evangelist as I do. Uh, and I don't think it you know, carries any water, it just makes no sense. Um, as far as any claimed expertise, I don't claim expertise um, to make the judgment that they've made mistakes here, but um, I think that my arguments bear it out. Well, it sounds to me that you have been saying that they are wrong in this case. Um, how can they be right when you said that generally they are good, they are really good, but they could have done better here? based on your studies. So that has to be a critique, a criticism of modern translations. But you don't, you're not even in a position to make that critique. Based on Greek, you're not in a position to make that critique. All right, but yeah, I think uh, probably based on the um, you know, specifics yeah. and the intricacies of uh, Greek interpretation, I would not you know, have any expertise uh, as far as that goes. I am an expert translator. Uh, just not Greek. So I understand translational principles. I think that what I've laid out are reasons to believe that the that the versions, you know, got it wrong. And I've I've uh, speculated what I think is the most plausible explanation for it. Um, that's all. Okay. Well, it, it's it is speculation at the least, but it's contradicting scripture at at worst, and it is wrong. The your knowledge of Greek in reference to first. Timothy 3.1, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.1, uh, 
I mentioned earlier a couple of times at least that there is a difference between verses 1 and 2 in the Greek. There's a difference between those two verses, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, it uses a Greek word episkopes, and it would be with the definite article feminine, hey episkopes, and when it has that ending, ace, that morphology, that ending, it has to do with an office. It doesn't have to do with the person, it has to do with the office. Then in verse 2, when he's describing the qualities of the person, he uses ha, the definite article ha, which is masculine, episkopos. So that is a different spelling, it's a different morphology. The morphology and the definite article associated with the words in verses 1 and 2 are different. Feminine, with the feminine ending, hey, episkopes, and then in 1 Timothy 3, 2, ha, episkopos. They are different. The reason for the feminine, according to Greek grammar, has to do with its conveying office. That's the Greek way of saying office, office of overseer. And I have in front of me a couple of lexicons. One is the Liddell and Scott, Liddell and Scott Oxford lexicon. Um, and they, for both 1 Timothy 3.1 and 1 Timothy 4.14, for both Episcopus and for Presbyterian, in both cases, they take it as an office, a council, a group of leaders called overseers or elders. <coughs> That's how they render it. That is the Scott <coughs> lexicon, lexicon, and also I have another one by Zerwick. A grammatical analysis, and for example, I'll just read his excerpt, he says, for 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, office of bishop. That's his rendering or gloss for 1 Timothy 3.1, office of bishop. And then when we get to verse 2, he simply says bishop, because he knows we're dealing with two different Greek forms. Same basic root, but different forms, because one form is conveying office, and the other form conveying the person who holds the office. That's the case in 1 Timothy 3.1 and 1 Timothy 4.14. That is indisputable grammatically. Now, that should cause you to pause instead of being very, very confident in what you're saying because actually you're, you're saying things that are completely wrong, completely contradictory to Greek and known lexical meanings of words. Um, another question I have for you, um, why is it uh, or when is it that you first learned these unbiblical views? How, how did this come about? How did it come about? Um, I would just have to say it was a um, a gradual thing, picking up things here and there. I'm not sure that I could name a date or a specific time. But I think that I, I would say that I've probably held these views for around at least five years. Something like five that. years. Five years. And 
From where though? Who, who talked to you or what did you hear? Picked up pieces here and there. Picked up pieces from uh, uh, the likes of uh, so good friends who are very intelligent. I've also picked up some stuff um, from like a New Testament Reformation Fellowship, Steve Ackerson. Um, oh, let's see. I, you know, honestly, I didn't, I didn't really keep solid track of different stuff that I've read, but I wouldn't say that, you know, it's, it's been thousands and thousands of pages of, of uh, material digested about the topic. Okay. And what, what is your church background and affiliation? Church background? Um, you mean like, um, well, I, I call myself an abolitionist. I'm a credo-baptist, a Calvinist, uh, hold to mostly Reformed theology, um, mostly post-millennial most of the time. But it just depends. Sometimes Jared uh, uh, says things about the news, and I'm just like, ah, that's a good point. Then, <laughs> uh, if if you are a Calvinist and a Credo Baptist, do you agree with the Second London Baptist Confession, 1689, or any of the other ones after that? Uh, I mean, most of it, yeah. But there are there are parts that I differ. Like church offices, you differ. Right. You got it. <laughs> Okay. Um, when did you profess faith in Christ? By God's grace, just under 28 years ago. 28. Okay. And do you believe in female pastors and preachers? Uh, female preachers, like female street preachers? Sure. Female pastors, no. But I don't really think that, like, pastor, you know, is, a, is a, an office, as we've been discussing. I think it's more of a gift. I think a woman could have the gift of shepherding, for sure, but there shouldn't be an office to hold, so I don't think a woman should hold the office. Well, what I mean, based on your views, if there is a time in the worship service to preach a sermon, could a woman hold that position in a church gathering, assembly, and preach a sermon from Scripture? I don't think it's best to, you know. I, and again, just to just to be clear, I'd like these are these are not things that I, um, you know, would, would part fellowship with anybody over or believe that they're you know doctrinally like foundational issues. I personally don't believe that it's best to structure um, kind of the, the time of the assembling together of the saints around a sermon. So I don't really think that that's the best idea as far as whether a woman should deliver it. Um, no, that would not be ideal unless there's like no men. That would be bad. Or if they're all really, really uh, immature men. There might be a, maybe a time and a place when the, the need necessitates, um, but ideally, no. Well, your position will eventually lead to that. It will lead to very dysfunctional, chaotic churches and women preaching however you want to call it, or whatever the scenario is of preaching, that's what it will cause. And that would be forbidden based on the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, um, 1 uh, Corinthians 14, 34 to 37. It would be contrary to Scripture. That's the kind of thing that if your principles are taken to their logical conclusion, it would lead to female preachers, pastors, whatever you want to call them, that's what it would lead to. And you, you would basically have a feminist church. And actually, generally speaking, 
the majority of churches, whether they admit it or not, are that way, controlled by women. Um, now, at, when you said that everyone should share the gospel, well, what makes you think that we don't believe everyone should share the gospel? We do believe everyone should share the gospel. It doesn't require a pastor or elder or deacon to do so. Everyone should be, should be sharing the gospel. But whenever there are questions and issues, stumbling blocks that come up, it's okay for someone in the church to go to the pastor, somebody more knowledgeable, which is usually the pastor, go to him and ask him for questions so that he can relay the answer. And, and there's no problem with that. Um, but in Ephesians, another point you were making was in Ephesians 5.21, um, is the wife to submit in every scenario? Well, what makes you think that that's what we believe? We don't believe that that's the case. Just like if a child was told by his parents to go to the store, and let's say it's a minor, a minor child, go to the store and steal thus and so, should that child, Christian or not, steal because the parents said so? No. But otherwise, when the parents are telling the child to do something that's right and good, then the child should obey. Just to be clear, I definitely agree. I, I, I just to just to be clear, I wasn't charging um, either of either of you brothers or people who agree with you necessarily with you know saying that like a uh, you know lay people should not share the gospel. I, I was not intending to communicate that. Uh, also, not intending to communicate that you know children should do evil if their parents tell them to or whatever. I was trying to make a different point, just to clarify. No, no, actually, that would be the logical conclusion that we hold, according to you, that. Is the wife supposed to submit to the husband in every scenario? Of course not. Of course not. What if the husband wants to go to an orgy, a drunken orgy? Agreed. She that should would, say Right. I think that's a point where, you, where your position is inconsistent. That's why I made the point. It's not inconsistent. It's thoroughly biblical. For example, Daniel the prophet was serving in the court of, of both the Babylonians and the Persians. He was serving faithfully until they expected him to do something contrary to the Word of God. Then he disobeyed. Daniel chapter 6, for example, or his friends in Daniel chapter 3. We are to obey until they expect us to do something contrary to God's Holy Word. The Hebrew midwives, the same. Exodus chapter 1, 15 to 22. They were expected to do whatever their duties were, except when the king told them to murder the male children, the male babies. Then they refused to do it. This is the way it works in Scripture. It's not inconsistent with Scripture. In Scripture, authority, let no one disregard your authority, speak with all authority, rebuke with all authority, exhort with all authority. It doesn't mean that whenever the pastor is expecting his people, the people under him, to do uh, to do something that's unbiblical that they are supposed to fall in line. That's never the case. It's never the case with children to parents, never the case wife to hus husband. It's never the case with men to their commanders in the military. But what if, what if as, as go and rape, rape in the village? What if the commander says, go rape all the women in the village? That's a great question. The soldier should say no. Agreed. Okay, so it's not un, it's not contrary to my position. It's 
completely in accord with my position because my position is thoroughly biblical. You got about 30 seconds. Okay, and then when you said 1 Timothy 2.9, my interpretation is like the caste system, that was a very... Peter, First Peter. Uh, sorry, 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, like the caste system, my interpretation. Then was there a caste system when the apostles and the prophets and Christ were walking the earth? Oh, sorry. Didn't click on the... Uh, um, their caste system. Uh, I don't think in the way that you mean it now. Well, the way you mean it. The way you meant it in First Peter 2.9, priesthood of all believers, the way I interpreted that, I only said, according to Scripture, that there are offices of elder and deacon. But that doesn't mean it's a caste system. But you called it a caste system. And if you called it a caste system, you would have to call Jesus' office as a prophet, priest, and king throughout the Old Testament, and even the apostolic office that Paul and others held, you would have to call that a caste system. Yeah, I would disagree with that statement. Obviously, Jesus would be an exception, being God in flesh and all that kind of stuff. As far as the apostles, they had um, they were reliable um, because God inspired um, and the new, like, the New Covenant was being poured out, there was no New Testament at the time, so there was a lot of new information that needed to be shared with the people of God. And um, the, the question is, you know, how can the people of God get reliably good information as to how the Old Testament now applies, you know, given the New Covenant, given that the cross and the resurrection have both occurred and Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he was talking about this helper, and what does all that stuff mean? And there's all these different pieces of information that the uh, early Christians would need. So I wouldn't see it as a, as a caste system. Rather, uh, the apostles um, were reliably known and were reliably like guided by God to be to, to serve in that function to make sure that really really good solid and uh, you know even Theopanustos information was getting to the people of God at the time, rather than being rather than holding office. But they were holding an office. I disagree. I agree they were inspired, but they were hold if they weren't holding an office. Then why weren't why wasn't anybody else gifted to do the things that they did? And why did Paul assert his authority in the book of Galatians and elsewhere? No, because he was um, he was being he was getting direct divine revelation from God, and he was specifically set apart for that task and that role. Yeah, he said called as an apostle, right. Romans one. Right. He was so he's called as an apostle. That's an office. Right. And Ephesians, well, that's that's your claim, but Ephesians four says it's a gift. It's a gift and an office. It's We're, both. Why can't they be both? I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily see why they couldn't be both, but in Ephesians 4 it specifically says gift and it specifically does not say office. Correct, but what else is it if it is an office according to other passages, what else would it be in Ephesians 4, 11? Uh, well, I don't, it's, a, it's a gift and no other, no other consideration is needed because it's a gift or you could think of it also as an action or a function or a role or something like that, but uh, office, I don't see a reason to think that it is. You're muted, Jared. Still muted. We're at, we're at 18 minutes. There you you want to you you finish that thought or you want to extend it a little bit or just cut it off, both of you? Go to the next one? He can go. Okay. All right. Reset it.
All right, Alan. Okay. Thank you, brother. This has been a really fun time, and I appreciate you, and uh, I pray rich blessings upon you uh, in all things. And uh, let's see, I'd like to ask about this. You've said, you've said a couple times that there's two offices. Um, if you could briefly, concisely, how many total offices are there currently in the New Testament church? How many in the local church? Not the local church, but just in the church, yeah. I don't know which local church we're talking about. I didn't name one. So just in the church, how many offices are there? Well, we're talking about elders and deacons. Does the office of evangelist exist? It may, it may not, but that's irrelevant to the point. Okay. Uh, why would you say it's irrelevant? Well, the way that you're taking Ephesians 4.11, it's all one package. But just according to your position on your on your foundations. If one is a cessationist, then one could say that those three, the first three, have elapsed. So if they have elapsed, then the, the main issue is whether there are pastor, teachers, and then deacons. What um, what would lead you? What would be a very brief case that the office of evangelist has has elapsed? Well, because it's not mentioned in First Timothy, and Philip is the only one in Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Acts twenty-one eight, and then in Second Timothy four, he told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. He didn't say, make sure that the evangelist in your local church does the work. Uh, or work. make sure you work with him. He said, do the work of an evangelist. Is it possible? You, oh, sorry. you see what I'm saying? The point is, the main issue is pastor and deacon, or elder deacon. That's the main issue, because that's the issue that you are denying. If one is a cessationist, then he could say, apostle, prophet, evangelist, they don't exist anymore. But even if... He's not saying that the office of evangelist has passed away. If it's modern, you're still going to deny that it's an office. So how many of those are offices or not, current or not, is irrelevant to our discussion. The real issue is, why is it that you can't see that the gift is practiced in the office? Well, okay. Yeah, that's a good that's a good segue to my next question. What is it specifically about the gift of, uh, say, shepherd teacher, that necessitates that it's uh, that it requires an office, kind of in the context of which, as I understood you to say, to exercise that gift? Why is it not uh, possible for just somebody to shepherd somebody else or multiple somebody else's? Yes, because it says the qualities in First Timothy three verse two. It says he should be able to teach. And in Titus 1.9, it says he should be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Is, so if they have those abilities gifted by God, then they can fulfill that office, the okay. office of pastor or elder. Okay, is everybody in the uh, body of Christ supposed to be able to refute sound teaching, or uh, bad, bad teaching, and to refute those who contradict? Everyone should, but everyone is not able. Okay. Wouldn't that be the case also with somebody who holds the office of clergy? Everyone should, but everyone is not able? There are many who hold the office of clergy who shouldn't. 
Yeah, well, that's for sure. So you would agree then that many are many don't do that then, right? Correct, and they shouldn't be in the clergy. Right, but well, according to you, so the office does not actually confer that actual gifting, does it? Wait, wait. according to me, First Timothy three two says he should be able to teach. If someone is a pastor, elder, a bishop, priest, whatever you call that position in whatever denomination, if he's not able to teach, then he is disqualified. It's not my opinion, it's what scripture says. Okay. Um, about authority. Um, so I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that I was able to clarify that uh, the wife should not submit to the husband in literally every scenario, et cetera, et cetera. I knew that you didn't you know, agree with that. Um, who decides? Uh, sorry, you, you said until, until they did contrary to the word of God, people were supposed to obey. Like, for example, you brought up Daniel. Daniel was supposed to, uh, you know, obey until they, commanded, um, until they commanded something contrary to the word of God. Who decides um, what is contrary to the word of God in that case? Every believer should know scripture and to the best of his ability, based on what he knows, follow God's will according to scripture. Okay, so I'm going to make a statement um, and I'd like you to tell me how your position differs from the statement. Okay, so the statement is do what the Word of God says regardless of who tells you to do whatever. And please distinguish between that statement and your position. How would, what's the difference? Repeat the statement please. Do what the Word of God says regardless of who is telling you whatever. Well, I don't know who intends or what with that, but if I were to take it like the donkey telling Balaam what to do, then that statement would be true. Or if it's Caiaphas who prophesied that Christ would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but for the children of God scattered abroad. Caiaphas was an unbeliever, but it says in... John 11, 47 to 53, it says there that because he was high priest, he prophesied. The wicked man prophesied that Jesus was going to die for his scattered children. So the children of God. And so it is possible for unbelievers to speak the truth. If that's what is meant by the statement, then that's fine. But if it's talking about blind obedience then no <clears throat> okay i so, disagree it's sure, because sure. the sure. examples i've already given right so you talked about authority before that the office holder might have or exercise um it seems that you're seems that just now you've told me that the authority that an office holder has um is to tell somebody to do the right thing and to tell somebody not to do the wrong thing how does that differ from the same relationship that literally anybody else might have toward me well, in that matter, if somebody has the same knowledge, he can tell you the same thing. But is there someone who's supposed to be diligent to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth? Yes, Second Timothy 2.15 calls on pastors to be well-equipped to teach their people. Whenever they have dilemmas, whenever they have questions, they're supposed to be able to answer them and show them what Scripture says. Where does 2 Timothy 2 specifically identify Timothy as a pastor? Or anywhere in the Timothy epistles? 
Where does Second Timothy or identify first, Timothy? First or Second Timothy? Yeah. That he is a pastor. Yeah. Why does he say, "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth"? Because everybody's supposed to do that, right? Everybody. Yeah, well, everybody should do that. Yeah. But so everybody's supposed to do that. So why would that not make sense to tell somebody that you need to do those things? Why would that be? Why would it be different for somebody special? He's supposed to be the example. He's supposed to be the one who shows others as a leader. The pastor is supposed to be the local example of what it means to be faithful to Christ. Is not everybody supposed to strike for that goal? Of course everybody is. Okay. Why is it that because everybody should, that there can't be a few who are called and gifted in the office to show it, to model it, to display it, to help others who have not attained to what he has attained? Now, yeah, so hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, like I can, I can see what you're saying, but at the same time, since, I mean, are you not saying that, you know, like, you're justifying your claim that the office exists because Paul says these things to Timothy, yet have you not just now said that those commands apply to literally everybody? Because they apply to everyone, generally speaking, they apply to everyone. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is no office. That does not logically follow. Yeah, you're, but you're but you're supposed to be affirming that the office exists, and you, you use that claim as a justification. I did from Greek, First Timothy three one and First Timothy four, fourteen. Okay, I did. Um, do you? Before we jump over to that, uh, you said before whenever there are questions and issues that come up within like a local assembly, um, it might it might be helpful, and I would I would totally agree with the statement by the way that it would be uh, usually it's helpful to go to someone more knowledgeable, definitely. Um, you said, which is usually the pastor. Um, well, I mean, we could go to J.D. Greer's church and see if that's true. There's like nobody knowledgeable over there. Um, I guess I'm wondering, uh, what if the pastor is not more knowledgeable? A true, a true church. J.D. Greer is a false church. A, a true church. Convergence. We agree. <laughs> How did we get there? <laughs> there, are, there are many, many false churches. And I think what you're doing is you're seeing the false churches and you are confused and mesmerized by what's going on, but you're not submitting your mind to Scripture. So, in the case, let's let's take a uh, let's take a what you would call a true church um, and like a, a generally faithful church um, with uh, with generally faithful doctrine. Um, questions and issues come up within people decide to go to the office holder. What if that guy is not more knowledgeable? What then? If he's not more knowledgeable, then find a church where he is. So that you can learn and then often though people use that as an excuse to just not go to church or to skip church or to always be a malcontent about church well he doesn't know well maybe you don't really know and you think you know is it possible that it might be better in that situation to find somebody else in the assembly and ask them the question oh sure would that person in that in that particular circumstance be engaging in shepherding Well, it is certainly teaching. It's certainly teaching, and that's fine. How would you distinguish between teaching and shepherding? Well, if you're trying to generalize it, then fine. Every, anybody who, who knows more, 
can teach others who know less. But if you're trying to use that as a reason for there not being an office, it doesn't logically follow. So if, um, if they go to that person uh, who's not the clergy office holder, and he's successfully able, um, let's say over the course of numerous different scenarios, he's able to, you know, teach people and shepherd people and like problems get resolved and all that kind of stuff, but he's still not the office holder. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that you just agreed that he would be, he would indeed be engaging in teaching and shepherding. How does that, how is that not inconsistent with the claim that the gift is always in correlation with the office? I didn't say always. Okay. I didn't say always. So what would you say? Would you say usually, sometimes? What would be the word? In, in those passages, that's what they, those passages are teaching, so that we have to have a place for the offices in the local church. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, let's see. Question about uh, question about Greek in First Timothy chapter three verse one. Um, let's see. And you might want to pull up the Greek text if you don't have it in front of you there. Um, okay. So uh, in the uh, Greek New Testament here. Uh, episkopon. Okay, what is there about the word episkopon uh, in that uh, particular that particular text that necessitates that the word office of be added? You're looking the, at the, the wrong text. verse. You're looking at the wrong verse. It's verse one. Oh, sorry, I am. Episcopace. I take it back. Yeah, you're right. I was. I had it on the wrong thing. So episcopace. What is it about uh, the word episcopace that necessitates? Uh, translating it as uh, office of overseer rather than just a uh, overseer or oversight. Are you reading the transliteration or are you reading Greek? Well, I was reading the, the, the Greek text just now. Okay. It's the eta. You see eta sigma at the end? Yep. The, that eta is a feminine ending. It goes with the definite article he, which mm -hmm. is also feminine. Mm -hmm. Hey, episcopes. See that ending that morphology identifies it as office of overseer but then in verse 2 episcopon coming from episcopos the definite article is ha episcopos that is the lexical form that has to do with the person the individual holding the office what is your um when we look at the word in verse one um other occurrences of that word are in uh, like Luke chapter 19 or 1 Peter 2. Both times it's translated visitation. Why do you think that is? Wh which verse? 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. So 1 Peter 2 12. And uh, also Luke 19 44. So 1 Peter 2 12 and Luke 19 44. The word occurs yeah. there? Yes, uh, on the, his return. Yes. And or time of your visitation, day of visitation, as in the uh, NAS. What's your reaction yeah. to the way that those uh, words are translated, same word? Okay, do you want to translate it, visitation, in First Timothy 3, 1? Maybe so. Why not? If anyone aspires to visitation, it is a fine work he desires to do. A visitor must be so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, who's the visitor? Well, and, what's, and what is visitation? 
I'm not sure. I'm unable to do a whole bunch of systematic theology on the fly, um, but I was just wondering what your reaction would be. So it sounds like even visitation and visitor. Can you see a difference between visitation and visitor? Visitation sure. is not the person. Right. It's something else, right? It's right. A, an abstract entity. Mm -hmm. So the abstract nature, the difference between First Timothy three verse one and verse two verse verses one and two, that distinction is still evident in its use in Luke nineteen forty four, and in First Peter two, verse uh, verse twelve. Yeah, that's not a left. So the the real issue is in the context. What does it mean in those other contexts? Okay. You see, in First Timothy three, it has it means overseer, right? It means overseer. Okay. So, when one is in the day of visitation, what is happening on the day of visitation? God is overseeing. God is taking up the office of overseer on the day of visitation, on that day of judgment, to oversee the judgment. Okay. Um, let's see. About 30 seconds. 30 seconds. All right. Thank you. Why do you think that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul does not say, do not rebuke an elder? I already mentioned it because in First Timothy five one, just like in First Timothy uh, uh, elsewhere and in other passages, he is using the form of uh, presbuteros. He's using that form. He's not using the form for presbyterion. He's using the form for the person. He's not using the form for the office. It's a different context. And if you read the context, he's talking about old men, young men, old women, young women. Right. Would you but agree that the that the word presbyteros, that a broader meaning would be older man rather than el like clergy office holder? Wouldn't you agree that that would be a broader meaning? Certainly. That's why it's rendered that way in 1 Timothy 5. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the reason that both the ma masculine and feminine are rendered like that in even Titus chapter 2. Because we're talking about the age of the people in those passages. In 1 Timothy 3, it's not the context of the age of the people. It's talking about the qualifications of the offices of elder and deacon. We're about a minute over. Yeah, no further questions. Thank you, brother. God bless you. Okay. Um... All right, we uh, these we're coming now to the uh, closing statement. Um, give each of you guys uh, uh, each of you three minutes on this to make a closing statement. And uh, Dr. Mudiar, you can uh, go first. Oh wait, um, yeah, it's me. I'm going first because yeah. you're in the next. Yeah, sorry. All right, let me know when you're ready. Oh, let me get let me get my timer. Okay, I'm ready when you are. Say go. Okay, go ahead. All right. 
Again, glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Brother Ish, thanks so much for agreeing to engage in this discussion. It's been uh, uh, really a blessing for me, and I appreciate it very much, and I pray that the Lord will bless you richly. Um, so thanks for the points about uh, Greek grammar. Um, definitely bears definitely bears more study at the same time. What um, I didn't have a lot of time to you know talk about and flesh out more of what I think the, the word is actually referring to. But I don't think that uh, there's any convincing evidence, um, even that Brother Ish has presented tonight, that would make us believe that office exists in the New Testament, rather than to think of overseer as a function or a role that might temporarily be played, especially by older mature men taking their place in the body of believers for specific purposes, especially when you have a whole bunch of immature believers in the assembly who need a lot of, uh, a lot of oversight, a lot of shepherding. Um, at the same time, that shepherding, as people get more and more mature, as we discussed in our example with the, you know, the non-knowledgeable pastor versus the knowledgeable layman, uh, even Brother Ish agreed that in that case, it would be a good idea not to go to the office holder guy, but rather to go to the layman who has knowledge because he has knowledge, not because he has an office. The office is irrelevant in that case. There's no reason to uh, set aside somebody with an office in that case versus somebody who doesn't have an office but rather on the basis of their understanding of Scripture, the life and the pattern of the lifestyle that they lead, you know, whether, they, uh, whether they are being faithful to the Word of God. The thing is, that could be anybody. That could be an office holder. It could be a non-office holder. Um, so with that in mind, I believe that that is the more consistent New Testament teaching. Jesus is concerned that we not accrue titles to ourselves. We did not see a response to, um, to Matthew 20, other than to say, well, I mean, look at, look at, these, you know, look at how Paul tried to reestablish a relationship with the Corinthians, but I pointed out that he wasn't asking them to call him that. It was just he was just asking them to think of him as the father and as a teacher, because he was a father and he was a teacher. But he wasn't saying like, "Hey, I want to have the office of father," or "Call me by this title." He just wanted to have a relationship with them and love them and build them up. Um, we talked about authority, but I believe that we saw his position on authority to be um, on the incoherent side, uh, with all due respect, because we talked about. You know, what's a wife supposed to do and her husband? Well, she's supposed to do when, when the husband says, let's do something. If it's right, do it. If it's wrong, don't do it. But that's the case with literally any relationship of literally any person at literally any time. And so, again, we don't see a distinction between how the office holder might relate to the non-office holder. If the office holder says to do something, if it's in accord with the Word of God, as Brother Ish agreed with me earlier during the cross-examination, then we should go ahead and do it. And if it's not, then we should not do it. So there's, again, no difference by the way that there's no reason to think that there's a caste system in place. It's just what we should look for is faithfulness, godliness, understanding of the Scripture, and uh, live and love each other with the one another's of the Scripture. God bless everybody listening. Thanks so much again. God bless you. All right. Um, Ish, closing statements? Yes. When you say that there's been nothing presented, that means that you're not looking at the evidence. You are too blind to look at the evidence. You don't know Greek. You have not studied Greek. You don't know what you're talking about. That's a problem. You cannot say no evidence was presented. Nothing was presented. When you say it's okay to go to a layman, yes, I agree it's okay to go to a layman, but my fear is that people like you, Alan, are very divisive and factional in churches. And no church will be a good church for you. You're going to be so discontent, so much of a malcontent, that you're going to be churchless and hop here and there, and perhaps even just stay at home and do your own thing, just like cult leaders do. I don't want you to be like a cult. 
Um, when you say I had no response to Matthew 23, 8, I did have a response. I also agree that we shouldn't be using titles. I agree with that. But you fail to understand the distinctions of Matthew 23. I agree that we should not be boasting in titles, calling ourselves father, leader, pastor, whatever. We shouldn't be boasting in that. But when people need to know who you are, you have to say who you are. A car mechanic says he's a car mechanic. An engineer, mechanical engineer, says he's a mechanical engineer. A computer scientist says he's a computer scientist. And it's okay for a pastor to say he's a pastor. And he's not violating Matthew 23. Then, in reference to incoherence on authority, actually you are the one that is incoherent because you're con constantly contradicting the authority of Holy Scripture. Whatever I'm saying is consistent with Holy Scripture. We obey authorities as long as they are in line with Scripture. The moment they contradict Scripture, then we disobey those authorities, even a pastor, if the pastor says something contrary. And then you brought up the word caste system again. This is a very offensive word. It is a very offensive word because caste system belongs to a pagan Hindu religion. It's paganism, it's idolatry, and it is contrary to a biblical worldview and biblical values. You cannot use the word caste system to describe this position. In fact, your position is following the traditions of men. It's not in line with scripture. It is not in line with Greek grammar. It's not in line with a coherent understanding of all of scripture. It's About not in seconds. with that. It, in fact, undermines it, and you are in jeopardy of pr practicing the traditions of men. Therefore, you would be a legalist, you would be a hypocrite, and you would be headed to hell, according to Matthew 15 and Matthew 23. I pray that that's not the case with you. All right. We are done here. Um, well, thank you guys for... Uh participating in that and uh, you guys I mean off of the debate want to talk about anything are you are you finished or that's all thank you final remarks yeah nothing about the debate just uh, again brother ish thanks so much um, really enjoyable I know that we didn't end up agreeing and all that kind of stuff but um, I just want to say thank you because um, it was it was a great time and I appreciate your insight very much I'll make sure that um, both of you are emailed the uh, the video recording and if you want the audio as well which is backed up on this little audio recorder um happy to provide it as well a little bit more trouble but no no trouble happy to provide it to you okay thank you for both thanks right. good night understood god bless you